Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. On my panel tonight, we've got Martin Wright, who is the chair of Positive News. I'm hoping he's going to be able to share at least one positive news story with us. Before we say goodbye tonight, also joining me is Claire Fox, the Baroness of Buckley, and Daniel Moylan, a Conservative life peer in the House of Lords. You know the drill on Jubes and Co by now. It's not just about us, it's about you at home as well and your thoughts. What's on your mind? You can get in touch with me on email gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, you can uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, we're on the radio, DAB+. We've got podcasts. We're everywhere. You know what's going on by now. Uh, James has emailed straight in. No messing around with James. Uh, very quick fingers you've got, James. You say, the House of Lords should be abolished. It's a farce and a waste of taxpayers' money, you go on to say. And while you're at it, TV licence should be abolished too. Interesting. I'll get the views of two different lords on, on that topic in just a couple of minutes. But first, our top story. The UK and NATO allies have urged China not to back Russia's war effort in Ukraine or help Vladimir Putin escape the sanctions imposed following the invasion. UK's International Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan suggested that China could be hit with sanctions if it supplies arms to Russia. In the same way, of course, that Belarus has been targeted with economic measures. But before we get into whether or not China will even listen to the West, let's have a listen to what President Putin thinks about some of this. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it, and we've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. I tell you what, some people often say that President Biden uh, is nearly always half asleep. I think it's me tonight because if you're a keen observer, you will know that that was not President Putin at all. It was indeed President Biden. What he's talking about there is the potential start of a new world order. What do you think to that? Is he right? Martin? Well, I think there's a danger really of an old world order coming back, particularly if we drive China and Russia into each other's arms. There's a slight danger that we find ourselves in a new and very long Cold War. Um, we are absolutely right to back the Ukrainians. We're absolutely right to help them resist this brutal invasion. Uh, I think we're also right not to risk a nuclear war with Russia by, for example, trying to enforce a no-fly zone that would lead to us having to um, take out Russian airfields if we were to make it, make it happen. Um, I think in the long term, we have to find a way of bringing Russia back into the fold, hopefully in some kind of post-Putin incarnation. I mean, you have to admit that the West over the last 30 years or so, it has sent a lot of mixed messages to Russia. You know, on the one hand, back in the 90s, uh, various Western leaders kept reassuring Russia, no, we're not going to expand NATO, we're going to keep NATO where it is, and then... NATO went east right up to the Russian border. Um, at other times, the West has been quite pusillanimous, quite weak regarding Russia. So when Russia went into Georgia, into Chechnya, into Crimea, you know, we, we sanctioned a few oligarchs, which was neither here nor there. So we sent out kind of mixed messages. And I think that led 
Putin to think that, OK, they won't do much if I go into Ukraine. Um, so it's good that the West is taking a much, a much, much firmer line, but it also has to hold out the prospect of Russia, let's say, coming back into the fold, becoming a European power. Um, and I think that's particularly relevant in terms of looking at China and the West's relationship with China. Um, the one thing I would say, and this is a tiny bit controversial, it's wonderful that we're backing the Ukrainians in their fight for freedom. I don't want us to get too dewy-eyed about Ukraine. You know, there's been a kind of secular canonization of Zelensky. You know, he's being a great war leader. He's leading his people. That's marvellous. He's also just banned all the opposition political parties. Ukraine has its share of oligarchs as well. It's not a whiter-than-white regime. And so I think we need to just have a... Uh, a sense of proportion, while still, as I say, backing the Ukrainians to the hilt in fighting off, fighting off Moscow. Um, the one thing I would say, just briefly, is that I hope this will help accelerate the move towards a new world energy order. Um, it is ridiculous that we spend so much money importing fossil fuels, largely from dodgy dictatorships. Um, the UK uh, spends 50 billion a year on average, buying in fossil fuels. We've spent 22 billions buying Russian oil and gas since Russia took over Crimea. That is apparently enough for 8,000 T-14 tanks. Mm. And that's exactly what he's been spending it on. We know that the speed in which renewables have been coming down in price and cost, all the sort of opportunities now for energy storage, for using renewable electricity to produce hydrogen to drive a a low-carbon economy, are accelerating fast. We can't turn our back on gas overnight, but we can move towards that transition. Well, because it was your first time on the show with me, I thought to myself, should I start with Martin or not? Because sometimes when it's people's first times on the show, they can be a bit nervous. They might not say much the first time they warm up. No such worries with you, Martin. Very interesting stuff there, Claire Fox. Yeah, give that man a show, eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, there's quite a lot of what uh, Martin said that I agree with, so I won't repeat it. I suppose the, the one, one thing to develop that he said that I'm concerned about is I am concerned that we've seen example upon example of a failure of Western diplomatic skills over the last few decades, right? That this has not been the West's greatest hour. They haven't, uh, as, as Martin indicated, dealt with Russia in a way that I think has been helpful for the West. It's not, this is not about appeasing, this is about being sensible. And, and, and if you get into a situation where you do give those assurances and then you go back on them. Anyway, the reason I'm mentioning that is because I'm rather concerned that we're not exactly seeing a sophisticated approach in relation to China. So the idea that the West are going around saying, now don't you do this or we'll throw sanctions at you. I mean, it's, it's a bit like I'm thinking, can you not, can you at this point not kind of behave as though China's a naughty child? Because what, when you ask the question about the redivision of the world, I mean, I am concerned that just after the, you know, the, the war, after the Second World War, we had Yalta and America and Britain and uh, Russia sat around and divided Europe. And basically they put into um, chains the whole of Eastern Europe. They were just given to the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> you know, imagine the bitterness. You know, they divided Germany in half. They basically said, oh, you can have Hungary and Poland. We'll have these. I mean, that was a, the basis of, of, of the Cold War for all those years. 
we don't, we're getting to a situation now where this war, this is where I agree with Biden, is not just some little regional conflict. It's much bigger than that. Mm, it is and what indeed. comes out of this is going to be a new world. Now, China, we know are not friends of the West. They would not have wanted, I'd imagine, Putin to have done what he's done. They undoubtedly will think, God, that's the last thing we wanted for our plans. They've got a problem because they do actually support the notion of self-determination and because of you know, all, all sorts of reasons they would not want to be pushing things this way because they prefer a globalised world where the West was dependent on them. But you, I don't want them to be pushed into an alliance with Russia by bad diplomatic ministers. Well, you say you don't West. want them to be, but my uh, concern question, I guess, Daniel, is... I think they perhaps are being, because at the end of the day, you know, we're squeezing and squeezing and squeezing Russia, uh, Russian oligarchs, and to some extent the Russian people as well. And if you do that, there will be a consequence to that. And people are hoping that the consequence to this is going to be that Putin says, yeah, all right, fair enough, I've been a naughty boy, I'll pack it in and go back then. That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is he's, start, he's going to start going, and as we're already seeing, actually, I can circumvent this. I can do this. I can change the currency for my oil and gas into rubles. I can get further into yeah. bed with China. So the, the unintended consequences of what we were intending for good may end up not being so good. I say I listen to all of this with some amazement because I think you've, you, all this breast-beating and this complication you've introduced into it, all three of you, if I may say, unusually, Michelle, I find myself slightly out of... You don't need you. to always agree with me. Un, un, unusually, but normally you're spot on. I, I, it's, it's much simpler than that. The world we live in and value and our way of life is not safe with Russia in its current mode of behaviour. And it's not just a question of Ukraine, it's the question of the use of overwhelming, what they hoped would be overwhelming military force, to dominate their neighbours and dominate further afield. And our lives are not safe, our way of life is not safe, and the things we value are not safe, and they have to be stopped. Now, the best way of stopping them would indeed be if they were somebody overthrew Putin and they had their own Euromaidan movement. But much that's, that's to be hoped for, I don't think it's very likely. What we're heading for is a period, it will be a sort of Cold War with Russia, of 20 or 30 years, which is going to have serious consequences for, for us. We're going to have to pay for it. We're going to have to pay for more defence spending. We're going to have to pay more for our energy. We're going to have to probably to pay more for our food. But in the end, we will prevail because we can't let these people win. Now, as far as China is concerned... But hang on, let me just, before you even get into China, you sound to me, Daniel, like someone that's on the cusp of saying that we should indeed have, for example, a NATO no-fly zone. No, I'm not saying... Um, we got through the last Cold War and we have to have the skill, if you... We have to hope Mr Biden has the skill, uh, to get through the next Cold War in such a way that we always just managed to avoid nuclear war. Came close to it on a couple of occasions, like the Cuban crisis in 19, the early 1960s. We have to get through it without a nuclear war. And if, if, if the judgment is, at the moment, that directly engaging in a no-fly zone, even over the western part of Ukraine, could trigger a nuclear war, then I, I, if that judgment's correct, and I don't have a strong view, I don't have a great deal of information on that, but if that view is correct, then I would support those people who say that's not the right thing to do. But we're going to have to get through this. The alternative is you give in. You give him Ukraine. Yeah. You give him back the other parts of Eastern Europe. 
you Finlandize Germany, you have a, a neutral Germany, and you have democracy left clinging on in the few fringes of Western Europe, much as it was but, at the time but of Hitler, and perhaps in Britain. No, but I want to tell you a little, because um, I didn't think that I needed to come on here and say, I support Ukraine, I want absolutely Russia to be beaten in this, because I've said that so often, I didn't think I needed to re-declare it. When you say breast beating, I recognise that one thing that has happened in this war is there has been a, a discombobulation by a lot of people, which is there's so much cynicism about Western leaders from people who, for example, were lockdown sceptics or they don't believe politicians because of Brexit anymore. Or there's a real sort of cynicism. And that's conflated with a kind of left-leaning hatred of the West. That You've got all these people who just can't stand the West so much that they actually have ended up in a quagmire of kind of half support in Putin. And you, you even... Uh, um, I, I, I've been surprised by that. But I don't think it... So I recognise that, but none of us were doing it. I think that breast-beating is the wrong description for trying to understand how we got here. There's nothing wrong with that, because actually, in order to work out the way that the new world order is going to go, I think we can't ignore the failures of Western diplomacy over recent years, not because we want to have a kind of woe-is-me, breast-beating moment, but because I don't want them to make the mistakes with China. Because precisely for the reasons that you say, the stakes are high. The mistakes, I absolutely with, the mistakes you identify as making with Russia are the mistakes of standing, not standing up to them early enough. Well, or, and, and or whatever. And, and that is exactly the same mistake we can make with China. But hang on, yeah. because Martin um, made a point earlier on. We're saying that the, the mistake we've made with Putin is purely uh, not standing up to him quicker. Martin was making the point that actually one of the mistakes that many would argue that's been made with Putin is in some ways the antagonist, uh, antagonism, what's the word? Antagonising of him with the expansion of NATO eastwards. Right. These are democratic countries who've escaped from the Russian yoke, who have wanted to join NATO for their own defence by a free democratic choice. And, and you're saying that to please Putin, we should have said to them, no, no. sit out no, there, no, 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 on no, your own, no. on your own, no. it'll upset, no. no, upset and antagonise no. and upset no. President Putin. No, no, that's Perhaps. not what I'm you saying. You sit out there on your own and good luck to you. But that's no. not no. what I'm suggesting. Nobody's saying it. <laughs> Martin? Oh, we're not no, what are you saying? No, 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 nobody's saying it. We're saying that when the Cold War <laughs> ended, if you remember what happened then, that a series of Western leaders and military uh, leaders made it clear that in the post-Cold War period, Russian security would not be underestimated. Nobody said that to Gorbachev, by the way, because they were being nice to him. They were doing it for pragmatic security reasons of the West. They were basically understanding, well, this is a humiliated Russia. We've got to think how we deal with it. And then for a variety of reasons, those insights, those assurances, that conversation got Befuddled. Yeah, and, part and of it, it got befuddled because Gorbachev, you started off with a Gorbachev who was a relatively, relatively open in embracing a sort of democratic way forward. And you progressed through a Putin who appeared a very rational, younger leader that you might be able to deal, to a man who locks up his opponents, is, an, is a dictator, is elected 
by huge majorities, partly because nobody dares stand against him because they go straight to jail. It's an authoritarian regime. And it's become a totally authoritarian regime. I, well, let, let me it's bring complete authoritarian regime. It doesn't it really doesn't matter what happened in nineteen ninety. If right. we don't it learn is, from nineteen ninety or nineteen forty five, what, what, what what's is the, the lesson we learn? Hold on, you won't let me answer. Okay. Oh sorry, Mum. So interestingly enough, the purpose of NATO was obviously to uh, fend off Soviet aggression. Um, fend off the Warsaw Pact. It did it. We won. They lost. Um, we rolled back the frontiers right to the borders of the former Soviet Union. Um, ironically, at one point, uh, when uh, the early days of Putin, Russia was quite interested in joining NATO. Yeah, be a good and idea. And that would have been actually maybe quite a good idea. Mm. Um, we don't just allow anyone to join NATO because they want to. Otherwise, Ukraine would be a member of NATO. And we've been very clear. The West has been very clear. It's very rare I speak for the West. But the West has been very clear that uh, Ukraine won't join NATO. So I don't think there's a... Um, well, they've been clear now. I think there's been a bit of mixed There messaging. probably has been some mixed messaging, mixed messaging. As, as there is around the EU and Ukraine as well. Um, but I think recognising Western failures doesn't in any way abrogate our need to stand up for Ukraine now. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, that people get, I think there's a real confusion, Daniel. I think that if people seek to dig deeper than just the kind of tab tabloid headlines of what's gone on over the last month, then you get accused of almost being on the side of Putin, whereas to me, no, no, um, not what, accusing anybody what I that. try and do is this situation in Ukraine isn't a month old. There is so many different events over a passage of time that's led to where we are and understanding them, conversing them, uh, airing them. It's only that way that A, we understand them and B, can try and resolve and move forward with them. Well, you can say that, but the fact is, I don't see what those lessons are. We're in a situation today, the current situation we're facing is unprecedented. Russia has used, sent 150,000 armed men and all their tanks into an independent neighbouring country, we have to decide what that tells us about the Russia for the future. Well, apart can... from standing up for Ukraine, tells us about the Russia of today and the Russia of the future. And how we got here is really, is interesting, historically interesting, but I haven't heard a single lesson that we should have, we, well, we, that, a, very... that is relevant yeah. to us now. I can give you a lesson because we're <laughs> yeah. going to go, I'll, I'll do two lessons. First of all, I've got to learn a lesson in timekeeping because I should have gone to a break about five minutes ago and I didn't. So that's lesson one for me. But lesson um, generally, in fact, by the way, I asked a question at the start of this. Do you think we're heading towards a new world order? Biden reckons that we are. Uh, we've been running a poll on GB News uh, Twitter. Do you think that is right? Are we heading to a new world order? Uh, the results as it stands so far, 70% of you say yes, we are. And 40% of you say no, we're not. I'm going to take a quick break uh, in a second. When we come back, we'll have a lot more topics. And some of your responses to this topic, I can tell you we've had a lot. But uh, in very brief essence, you ask, Daniel, what lessons uh, yeah. should we learn? I can give you a very simple one. If a country tells you, if you do this, it's going to provoke a reaction. If you do this, it's going to provoke a reaction. And then you do it, and you do it, and you do it, and you do it again, don't be surprised when you get the reaction. That's a lesson that I've learned in a lot of this. Very brief for Claire. I'm saying we have to learn the lesson about how we deal with China. And I also think there's a danger that we are still fighting a proxy war in Ukraine, where we're basically saying, let the Ukrainians do it. And it's not even that I want the West in, but actually the West can talk to but then they say, but actually we can't do anything. You get on and fight it. There you go. That's not brave, in my opinion. Multiple lessons there.
Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Reminder as to who my panel are uh, this evening. Daniel Moylan, who's the former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a Conservative life peer in the House of Lords. We've got the Baroness of Buckley, Claire Fox. Don't you sound posh when we call you the Baroness of Buckley? Lady Fox to you. Lady Fox. <laughs> I want to be I want to be the Baroness of Hull. I could be <laughs> Lady Hull. I'm going to start myself a campaign. Uh, oh, yes, and I do apologise. Uh, the, the man, the good news, positive newsman himself, Martin Wright, also joins me. Good evening to the three of you. Lots of you guys have been getting in touch about that last conversation about uh, New World Order. Elsie makes a good point when we're talking about China. She says... Uh, everyone is talking about en energy dependency on Russia, but what about uh, all of our kind of dependency on goods from China, such as pretty much everything, antibiotics, microchips, clothing, tools, etc. Elsie, you make a very good point. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Leah Thomas has become the first transgender athlete to win a National Collegiate Athletic Association Swimming Championship. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Uh, but her victory has attracted a bit of a mixed reception, to put it mildly. The swimmer was representing the University of Pennsylvania and won the 500-yard freestyle last Thursday. But, as I said, her win is receiving a bit of backlash and even the likes of Caitlyn Jenner, a former Olympian herself, has said that Thomas was not the rightful winner of the championship. Let's cut to the chase, shall we? Um, Claire Fox, Baroness of Buckley, should um, transgender women be able to compete in female sports categories? No, because Why not? they aren't women in the physical sense of all of the things that in sport should count. They have an inbuilt biological advantage, which is that they've been, they're a born man and therefore they've gone through puberty. And the reason why we don't have mixed sex sports in general is because it's an unequal competition. But then why, Claire, do the sporting bodies, etc., uh, have a collection of rules? Because I can only assume that they've done their basic biological homework and looked into the science right. and all this, because they have a guideline, for example, where trans women could compete. This is, of course, what we're referring to here. Trans women could compete after one year of having testosterone levels um, below 10 nanomoles. Is it nanomoles? Is that how you say it? Per litre? But it's not, I mean, first of all, they haven't, I mean, if they've spent a year doing their science and their biology and they haven't worked the biological difference between a man and a woman, we're in trouble, right? It's not just testosterone. It's not just to do with that. If you uh, um, go through puberty, the way that your body develops, the strength that's built up and so on as a man. And in this particular controversy, I think the problem is, is that we get into a tangle over language. Now, you've just said... You know, Leah Thomas won, she won, you know, it's her, her, and so on and so forth. And then it looks like you're being unfair to a woman. And it's very difficult, but we have to, I have to just say, this is a male-bodied competitor. Now, I am not going to... I don't want uh, Leah Thomas not to be able to be By involved the way, in I sport. Didn't, I wasn't using pronouns when I was talking about Leah. I was saying she in relation to Caitlyn Jenner. All oh, right, sorry. But, but I mean, we, all I'm saying is we do get in a muddle, though, because we don't know how to describe trans women or trans men or what have you in terms of this. But what, when you say, why have the sporting bodies done it? I think it's political rather than biological or scientific. That's the first thing. They've basically adopted the position that to say that trans uh, women are not women in the sense of competitive sport would mean that they were being transphobic. They've basically gone along with that position. We know the impact of that in relation to 
everything from women's only wards in hospitals, women's uh, only prisons, all of these different things have now got into a complete jumble over this. But the one thing to say was that when Leah Thomas was a competitor in male sport, he came, he was ranked 554th in college sports. I mean, what happened was not that his swimming increased, he went into a different category, i.e. into women's swimming, and now he's the champion. Yeah, I mean, I She's thought... She's the champion. I thought Leah we were... is the champion. What I'm saying is, is that that's not because of an increase in sporting prowess, that's because the competitor was entered into a women's category. That Are you denies saying that women... all trans women have a competitive advantage over yes. biological women? Well, why didn't that... Um, the weightlifter, Laurel... Was it Laurel Hubbard? Why didn't she win then? Well, they've got a competitive advantage. It doesn't mean they're any good. That's a completely <laughs> different thing, right? I mean, you know, like, you could have, there's lots of males in the world, men in the world, who if you put them into the swimming pool with their swimmers, would, would be open. But if a man is biologically stronger, Daniel, if a man is biologically stronger than a woman and the sport is lift something, then one would assume that the biological man would win the biological female and lift more. Well, as Claire said, some people, I couldn't lift, um, I, I could barely lift a piece of paper that I dropped <laughs> on the ground. Um, it's, it depends what, 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 you're, what you're good at. Um, I, I generally agree with Claire. Um, it's cheating. That's what it is. It's a form of cheating. And, how can and it be I'd, cheating if the rules say it's OK? Oh, well, because the rules have been written so as to allow cheating. <laughs> hmm. as simple as that. And they've been written that way, as Claire says, because sports bodies have been ideologised, bullied, harassed, uh, persuaded taken over by, whatever, people who hold this view as a matter of ideological belief. Yeah, a matter of faith. Martin? Ha! Man waves into minefield. Um, <laughs> looking forward to being branded... Welcome to GB News, good stuff. Martin. Looking forward to being branded as trans-exclusionary radical feminist and never eating lunch in Stoke Newington again. Um, <laughs> I mean, the bottom line, I have to largely agree with Claire and Daniel, I'm afraid, the bottom line is that sport should be a level playing field. Of course, everyone should be able to participate in sport, but it seems unfair to have certain people with certain bodies from birth coming up against the sort of people they wouldn't normally come up against, as it were, um, in an unequal contest. How you resolve that, whether you measure hormone levels, testosterone levels, whether you measure weight and height levels, whether you even have a different category for trans people, you know, an entirely separate sporting category, I don't know. But it, it's uh, basically unfair if you're not competing more or less on a level playing field, at least level allowing for the differences in accidents of birth, etc. Well, hang on, because the single most important psychological factor, physiological factor for endurance athletes is haemoglobin. Haemoglobin levels are higher in men, which allows more oxygen to get into the muscles, but haemoglobin levels follow the testosterone. So within weeks of starting testosterone suppression, then test testosterone levels will be within female norms. So what they're saying is that the science means that you can make various amendments slash interventions to make it a more level playing field. Well, there's another, another piece of science is men generally, not in all cases, men generally have longer limbs and longer muscles to go with them and longer muscles can move greater loads. Um, and that's not affected by testosterone. It's not, I mean, if you only go on the testosterone thing, you're in trouble and that's what mm. they're trying to do. Mm. I, mean, I, I, I mean, this isn't very scientific, but I do think one should look at Leah Thomas and just go, hello, 
Right, I mean, I'm just serious, right? Look at that athlete. Yeah, but, Look then, at that someone, but then someone showed me another picture of a female swimmer. And I've got to say, female swimmers are not really my forte, so I can't pick them all out of lineups. But someone showed me another picture of a female yeah. swimmer. And I've got to say, and I'll cut to the chase, I thought, oh, blimey, she looks like a bloke. And it wasn't. It was no, a woman. I know, I know. And that's why I said it's crude. But all I'm saying is, is that I do feel as though we're all being, what's that phrase? Gaslit, right? Mm. Because you kind of end up thinking, you know, you kind of think, this is somebody who was a man who's still got the body of a man. Can we just, as an, as an aside, right? This is not somebody who's kind of like had fully transitioned for 20 years and, and become a woman. Right, when you say a woman, let me ask you a basic, simple, well, what I thought was a basic, simple question. I, I mean, I was always under the assumption that was simple. But people reckon these, this day and age, Claire, you can't even define what a woman is. Yes, well, that obviously politically... No politician defines what a woman is because they're frightened they're going to be called transphobic. We know that. You can't say that a woman is somebody with a cervix. You get into all sorts of trouble if you say uh, that it's a biological thing. Obviously, women shouldn't be reduced to their biology, but when they're erased as a biological sex, then you start to get anxious, if you may. I mean, l listen, think of the consequences. It actually came out in the Lords last week, this story, and then was in the newspapers, which is a woman on a women's ward in a hospital gets raped says to hospital, I was raped on ward. They say you couldn't have been raped on the ward because it's a woman's ward. It takes a year, and actually a baroness, as it goes, Baroness Nicholl, um, um, to raise this in the House of Lords. But then the NHS to admit that actually there was a transgender woman on the ward, but because they said it was all a women's ward, therefore the woman couldn't have been raped. And it's like you're kind of going, but there was somebody who raped me. Leah Thomas, whether we like it or not, as you will have read in the, the, you know, all of the coverage, actually has a male penis. I mean, can I, I wouldn't even want right, to well mention then, it, but I, this is something I thought I ought to say because it's not to be denied, and you feel as though you're. It's embarrassing to have to say that that means it's not a woman. I'm but just then, pointing out. But then what I don't get right is I am not, obviously, a professional athlete. But if I was a professional athlete, and to be a professional athlete, you have to make a heck of a lot of sacrifices in your outlook, your diet, your lifestyle, everything. So if I was a professional athlete and I was doing all of this and I was at the level of uh, being an Olympian, and then I was put into a situation where there was somebody who had an unfair physical advantage, I wouldn't race against them. I'd say no, I'd speak to my female competitors, I'd say, look, you know, collectively, if we collectively think this is unfair, then I'm stepping away from this. So this is the bit that I don't get. Surely people within this sport, if it is indeed, because look, let's be blunt about this. We're all in the same or similar mindset, but then we must be missing something. I think we must be missing something. The people that know what they're doing and what they're talking about. I think they're about. worried about the power of the governing bodies. Um, which have huge power over who participates and and so forth. That's both the national governing bodies that choose the national yeah. teams and the international governing body in most sports. And I think they're worried about causing trouble, um, which could see them banned. Even a short ban for a top athlete can be enough to end your career because your peak performance period is a few years only in most sports. Yeah. It's not entirely true in tennis, but in many sports, you've only got a few years. And you, you could risk those few years if you antagonize the authorities. So you're asking these athletes, these girl athletes, these lady athletes, 
to take a very big risk, and I can see why they might be reluctant to do it. It oh. shouldn't be down to the athletes, that's passing the buck. It should be down to the governing bodies, yeah. and they have to get... They're, they're, these are young competitors, aren't they? Yeah, they? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder, you know, if you're watching this, you might be at home and you're, what, you know, you're shouting at your screen, maybe we're missing something, um, you know, and if you're watching this saying it's absolutely right and fair, I mean, th th this is nothing against trans uh, women, trans men, whatever. I sometimes I get confused about what all the, the terminology is, but, you know, this is, I'm not against anyone that's trans. What we're asking the question is, is it fair... Is it a fair level playing field for it to be a, a category like this? Well, let's talk about changing the world for the better then, shall we? Uh, take your cue there. I was asking about the House of Lords, what your thoughts on it are. Um, you will have just noticed I'm joined by what, not one, but two members of it. Now... You know, there's lots of conversations, and let's be honest, they've spanned for years and years and years about, A, do we need the House of Lords? Uh, shall we reform it? Shall we scrap it? It is, of course, at the second largest chamber, second only to China, by the way. I think that tells us a lot of what we need to know. There's nearly 800 sitting um, Lords. 800? Really? Do we need that many? Daniel Moylan? Yeah, I think you probably do need that many because um, they only get paid if they work and quite a lot of them don't turn up 667, by the way, is the official number. Uh, but quite a lot of them don't turn up um, after a while. And um, you, need a, you need probably about 600 in order to get the 300 who need to do the work, if you see what I mean, because it isn't a full-time job. And you're only paid if you turn up. What's the purpose of the House of Lords in your mind, Daniel? Well, I think that's what you've got to clarify. If you're thinking about what, what you want to change it with, you need to understand what it does and does the, do those things need to be done and how could you do them better? Yeah, so what's it do then? So what it does mainly is it goes through its main purpose is it's a legislation factory. It goes through all the new laws that the government is coming up with and it proposes changes to them. Now, some of those changes challenge the government. The government gets very cross about them. But actually a huge number of changes made in the House of Lords are made by the government having actually listened to the argument because um, they realised they didn't get it right in the Commons first time round. The Commons doesn't spend very much time scrutinising legislation. They have lots of guillotines and timetables that limit the amount of time. And a lot of that scrutiny gets done in the Lords. Could you do it better with a different chamber that was elected you probably could, but it would, an elected chamber would have a lot more power vis-a-vis -vis the Commons, and the Commons probably doesn't really want that. But I, I wouldn't mind if you had an elected chamber. Yeah, I mean, I look at the number of hereditary peers, by the way. I think the concept that you're just born a lord, I think it's appalling. I think the I number think of hereditary... I think that's a real you think it's connection. it's marvellous? That has a real... We have an ancient and historical constitution. We have an hereditary monarchy. There are hereditary elements in our constitution that are really important to the continuity of our country, that speak to the roots of where we come from. And the fact that there are 90 hereditary peers in the House of Lords, I think, is one of its glories. Well, I and think by it's the one way, of they are the ones who do mo more work than anybody else. The one thing I'd say to you, uh, Michelle, so first of all, I think the House of Lords should be abolished. People could think that's mad because I'm in the House of Lords. What am I doing there? I'm a hypocrite. And it is true that I had to think long and hard about taking a peerage because I do think it should be abolished. Why am I doing it? So I had to decide, well, while it's still there, do I use it for what I think is important or not? But the reason I think it needs to be abolished is because I do think that having an unelected second chamber that has a, different, that has a disproportionate influence on 
the decision making around legislation is problematic because ultimately, as a Democrat, I think that the key thing are elected politicians being accountable to the people. Right, so that's that bit. On the hereditary bit though, what I would say is, a lot of people want to make a fuss about the hereditary peers. I'm actually, I actually think that we're much more undemocratic than them because having appointed peers, I mean, what's so good about that, right? There's a, you know, there's a kind of cronyism. Um, I don't mean us. Um, no, no, but no, but no, what I mean is, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm, you're a bit of a crony. What I'm saying is, is that they're just like you know, a lot of the people in the House of Lords are people who, for example, lost their seat in a general election. The electorate didn't want them, and then their their mate is the prime minister put them in the House of Lords. You know, and sometimes they become ministers in the House of Lords. So, and, and so I don't think the hereditaries are an issue. They're a smaller group than anyone else. If you're going to uh, do something. But, but just one positive thing. So I think it should be abolished. I don't know how it should be done, that you have a scrutinising body. But, you know, I just spent the morning um, in um, Bronzeville Prison. Uh, no, I wasn't locked up for the viewers that were wishing that I'd not been let out. It's a fantastic women's prison, and I really enjoyed being shown around by uh, the, some of the residents, the staff there, and all the work they did. And it was a kind of weird experience because I suppose I was sort of invited, partly because of the Academy of Ideas and, and we're thinking about doing a debating uh, competition there, partly it was for their, their new wing, but partly it was a bit like they had a baroness visiting, right? And so the other thing is, is that you've suddenly discovered that you've got this artificial title, which is like that I'm Lady Fox, and that that will mean that people will say, well, mm. come and do that. And, and yeah, I do position. try and do some good work with it. That's the point I'm making. I hope I can It's a help. position of elevation, isn't it? It's a it? position of elevation, which I don't deserve. But I think you can try when you're there. I put all my speeches on social media, not not just because I'm vain, as it were, but because I think I've got to be accountable for what I say. I do, I, do I, do a, I do a weekly Inside the Lords thing where I kind of do the gossip of what's happened, my journey, so that because I feel ridiculous that I'm there as a politician and that I've got, nobody can cancel me. Well, Chris has just emailed in saying, you only get paid if you turn up. Well, how much do you get paid then, Michelle? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, you two, but £323 yeah. per, per day. Per day, yeah. Per day, plus... Expenses? No, not, not no, plus expenses. No, no, no. Oh, so I've but, got but, it. But, plus travel I know, and I know, subsidised but, restaurant facilities. That's what I've got. Yeah, I know, Is this wrong? It, it, you only get, do they, some people get. But that's, it's still a lot of money. I, I'm, look, people are struggling in a house of, uh, you know, in a cost of living crisis, right? We know it's a lot of money and it's not a job. Well, Martin. Well, you only get, you get paid when you clock on, don't you? You don't, you don't get paid when you clock off and you say you've actually done some work, which might be an interesting way of doing it. No, you have to do some work. You have to do some work to get paid, do you? Do you? So could yeah. you go to the I House of Lords, clock in, go to the re subsidised restaurant for lunch and then go home again? And get your three hundred and twenty-three pounds. It's possible that you could, but most people no. who go in don't do that. Look, there's no, lots of things not, wrong with the House of Lords, but this sort of stuff is not. You, you, that's need, you need. I think that yeah. The thing is. What's the House of Lords for? We have to decide yeah. that first. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Once you've decided what it's for, then you could decide what kind of beast it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, Daniel's point about it being, uh, you know, a legislative uh, platform, you know, reflecting, reviewing, going through the details of the law kind of makes sense. Uh, is it the best way of doing that? How do we choose the people who are in it? I think if we just replaced it with an elected second chamber, it would be a carbon copy of the House of Commons. It would be tedious political point scoring and we and don't be really much want more expensive. that. What else should we do? Should we look at 
you know, the ancient Greek thing of having a lottery and people being dragged into, you know, a, a place where they can scrutinize legislation. Maybe that would be an interesting way of doing it. You know, get some, get some traffic wardens into, into the House of Lords, get some plumbers into the House of Lords and call it something other than the House of Lords. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I would I disagree with you in terms of abolishing it. I have to say, I do think it's um, almost essential to have checks and balances um, in terms of what the Commons are doing. So you need somebody to be able to check, to bounce across, to uh, oversee, I guess. But I that's, wouldn't want... But that's a scrut I suppose the difficulty is, Michelle, that, that you know, it is true what, what Daniel said, which is, is that there's not enough time scrutinising in the House of Commons. But, you know, maybe there should be more time scrutinising in the House of Commons for a start-off and committees scrutinising. The problem is, is that once it comes to the Lords, the Lords who are not elected can change legislation. And I know the government can agree to it, but they can get bounced into it because in order to get something through, they have to make compromises with people in the House of Lords who are not elected. And I do think that's a compromise of democratic accountability. And what about fixed term? Because you're a life peer. I don't think you should be. No offence. Yeah, but that, well, that's what the but, peers are. That you're given a life peerage, right? No, but that's what I'm saying. I don't agree with that. No, 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 no offence, no, Daniel. No, no. I think that you should no, have I think, a fixed term. I think term. People, people could... You, you can it's easily envisage having an elected second chamber where people are elected for 15 years yeah. on five-year rolling cycles, a third every five years. Yeah. You could have a different electoral system. But the consequence of that would be, first of all, we get no support, we get no secretaries, we get no staff, we get nobody working for us. We're lucky if we get a desk in a shared office. The first thing that would happen is every one of those people would have to have three researchers and a secretary, suite of officers for themselves, just like the Commons, because you couldn't do it any other way. They'd have to have a proper salary, not just this gig economy, turn up if they're sitting <laughs> and you might get paid, which is what we're on. So it'd be very much more expensive. And of course, the next first thing they'd be doing is they'd be saying to the Commons, we're elected too, so you've got to listen to us. And you get this ding-dong going on, which other countries manage. So it's, it's manageable. But it diffuses accountability, in my view, in a way that the House of Lords doesn't. Because generally speaking, if the government really wants something, the House of Lords will give way, normally, on most of its changes. Well, and, isn't... And, and give them up if the government says, we're really, if the Commons says, we're really not going to have... Well, they have to, constitutionally, eventually, don't they? Yeah. No. There is a funny bit, Michelle, which is that when I went there, the only other time that I've been involved in kind of politics in this way, because I've never been interested in being a parliamentarian, which is ironic, because this is what I've ended up doing, is when I was elected to the European Union, right, as a European uh, uh, um, Parliament. And when I went over there, I, I had three offices and a huge staff budget. I mean, I don't just mean me, every MEP did, right? And so when I went into the Lords, I said, oh, do I get an office and is there a staff budget? And they went, Where's my don't, entourage? Be, don't be ridiculous. But, I, and I, I, but, but there, it, it, what, one thing that Daniel's saying is right, is if you're working peers as we are, and this is not in any way to say we work so hard. Yeah, I'm not but, complaining. But we, no, 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 but what I'm saying is... It'd be more expensive if they were elected. You, you, if you are a working peer, you do do a lot of work and you have to do it yourself. That's what you do. That's perfectly reasonable as far as yeah, I'm concerned. I'm not complaining. But as you say, if it got bureaucratised and it got turned into a more... It, that's what you're saying, is you could end up with like lots of people saying, I need to have so many assistants. So the main thing is, for me, the democracy point.
Yeah, I've got to say, there's a real kind of um, mixed response coming through on on the email. Lots of you in favour of abolishing it, and I mean lots of you. Um, but lots of you also see the need for it to actually do some checks and balances and hold um, the House of Commons to scrutiny. That's how some of you are putting that through. I've got to say, I agree with that. I don't think abolish, but I do kind of think shake it up a bit. Certainly reduce it, by the way. Um, I'd also give them a pay cut as well, 323 quid. By the way, though, I will uh, close the show by admitting that I'm going to be a massive hypocrite because I've got to say, if Boris Johnson comes to me and says, uh, Michelle, I know you've just been um, slagging off the House of Lords, but do you want to be, do you want to be in it? I tell you, quicker than a quick thing from Quickland, I'd be in there. <laughs> Baroness of Hull, Lady Michelle, I'd be all over it like a skin rash. And yes, I do know that that makes me a hypocrite, but why not, eh? Anyway, that's all I've got time for. Daniel, Claire, Martin, thank you thank very you, much Michelle. for your time and thank company you. tonight. And thank you for your company at home. Have yourself a wonderful uh, weekend. And Boris, if you're listening, Lady Michelle, Baroness Michelle's got a great <laughs> ring to it. I'll see you all on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>